Most people are familiar with this speech. I want to play you just a short section of a great speech. Listen to this. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. We're going to stop it there. I have a dream speech is one of the greatest ever given in American history. However, listen to this. A person cannot understand that speech in all of its intended meaning if one doesn't know the background ideas to which he's referring. You see, Dr. King's speech is full of allusions, especially references to and quotations from the Bible. I just want to show you a few. Uh, I just grabbed a middle part of the speech. He says, five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, they gave the speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Gave, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. That is a very direct allusion to Amos chapter 5. You can't understand really what he's saying unless, you, unless you've read Amos 5. He goes on. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. A direct quote from Psalm 30 in reference to 1 Chronicles 6. He says, I have a dream that we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope that is straight from 2 Chronicles chapter 2. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. That's 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And then he says, with this faith, we'll be able, this is my favorite part of the speech, we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And that is, that is just slightly amended and taken from a fascinating sermon given in 1630, 300 plus years before, and it was given by a guy named John Winthrop, very famous sermon called The City on a Hill Speech. He gave it on a ship on his way to America. The point here today is not to parse any human speech, but it is, very, it is very significant to note that if you don't take the time to read Amos and Chronicles, and especially John Winthrop's sermon, you cannot understand Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Oh, you, you might put your own interpretation on it, but you'll never grasp what the author intended if you don't research his allusions. In fact, we needn't look very far these days to see the difference when people are ignorant of the background. Just compare the civil rights marches of the 1950s with the anti-biblical riots of today. Chaos is what you get when you miss the all-important context. In a similar way, if you and I don't understand the allusions, the history, the references in the Bible itself, we cannot get everything that God intends for us to hear. And I promise you that our own progress will turn to anarchy. It will turn to chaos if you and I read the Bible without understanding the background. Now, I bring that up because today you and I get to start a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. 
We're going to cover the first part of the book this fall and the latter section later next year. And we must know the context so we can understand exactly what God is saying in this piercing, fascinating, unifying book of the Bible. So, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians, if you would. Let's read the greeting. Uh, 1 Corinthians is right after Romans in your New Testament. Amazingly, just before 2 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the first headline you see inside your bulletin. You got a bulletin when you came in. Look on the left-hand side inside there, and you'll see our first headline is, Who Were the Corinthians? Let's learn a little bit about the historical and cultural context of the city-state of Corinth. Now, listen carefully. I don't expect you to absorb all of this. I'm just going to share with you a few tidbits from Corinthian history that have direct bearing on the topics and the metaphors that Paul uses in this letter. Okay, we'll cover all this when we get into the letter. I just want to give you an overview now so when you read 1 Corinthians, you can look for these things. Let's start at the, the oldest time period of Corinth. The Sisyphus was the legendary first king of Corinth. This was a man who was so enamored with his own cleverness that the gods sentenced him to a particularly nasty eternity. Does anybody know what Sisyphus's eternity was? What was it? He had to roll a stone... Yeah, had to roll it up the hill, but every time he got the stone to the crest of the hill, what would it do? It would roll back down, okay, all day, every day for eternity, rolling that hill up and down. That is, that is a pretty fair image of the many different phases of Corinthian history. They chose that story for a reason. You see, this city-state was continually self-congratulating themselves on how amazing they were, and they were also continuously finding themselves enslaved to sin. In the archaic period, Homer describes the city as, and I quote from the Iliad, wealthy Corinth. Now, the city's wealth was attained because of its strategic location. Look here at the map. Look at the map. Corinth sat astride this isthmus of Corinth between Attica to the northeast and the great Peloponnesus of Greece to the southwest. It's also between the Gulf of Corinth on the west and the Saronic Gulf on the east. Very strategic location. Most of the shipping of the world went through there. It was kind of like the Singapore of our day. Uh, the, most, the most popular port in the world. In the pre-classical and classical eras of Greece, writers continued to speak of Corinthian wealth. Look, Thucydides called it rich Corinth, Pindar, prosperous Corinth. Herodotus called them affluent. And get this one, this is fascinating. Uh, Aristophanes made up a word. He made up the word Corinthiadzomai, well, which means to live like a Corinthian. But here's how he used it. He used it of a sexually immoral lifestyle. Corinthiadzomai, that's what they were. They were just utterly sexually immoral. Periander ruled Corinth in 600 B.C., established one of the coolest things that I've ever seen in my life. Simply amazing. He's the guy who established something called the Dialkos. The Dialkos is simply genius. Okay? It was, it was kind of like a train in a way. Here's the ruts of where the rails used to be. Uh, you can see them. They're very well worn. I took that photo a number of years ago. The Dialkos took advantage of the fact that the Isthmus of Corinth is really, really small. And so ships, instead of sailing all the way around the Peloponnesus, ships would put in at the Saronic Gulf or at the Corinthian Gulf, or the two different uh, ports of Corinth, and then they would offload their goods onto this Dialkos, or sometimes if the ship was small, they'd put the whole ship 
on this thing, and then they would, they would trundle it across. The Dialcos ran about where the modern canal is. They would trundle it across to other ships on the other side, so they would keep ships on either side and move things, and the sailors would go in and enjoy the, the life of Corinth while their stuff was being moved. It was simply genius, and it made Corinth very wealthy. It was in this era that the great temple to Apollo was built at Corinth, and the Corinthian navy invented one of the, one of the fascinating world-changing events of all time. They invented the trireme warship. Let me just summarize it this way. The trireme will rule the seas for the next 500 years. It was, it was the nuclear technology of the day. Uh, at some point in the early classical era, a massive temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic sex, uh, was built up here on top of this huge hill. This is called the Acrocorinth. It's a massive fortress that overlooks the city of Corinth. Um, there were thousands of hetera's up there. The, that's temple prostitutes. They worked there. They catered to the affluent visitors and the sailors and the men of the city. They made the temple fabulously wealthy. The best meat market in the city was up there. That is not a pun. Uh, sacrifices, sacrifices were cooked up there. It was known far and wide. In most ancient cities, the best meat was found at a temple because it was cooked there as a sacrifice to the gods and then sold, and there weren't flies all over it. Well, this was considered some of the, the, the best cooking in the world. This is a huge restaurant. Massive. You can't even tell how big it was. But what, apparently what would happen is whole families go up there. They would, they would have a nice big meal with the best meat in the city up here. And then daddy would, uh, would kiss the kids on the head and hug mommy and send them down the hill, uh, down the Acrocorinth back to town. And then he would go through the heavy veil that was between the restaurant and the worship area and go see the temple prostitutes. Um, I would imagine it's similar to 21st century Las Vegas. That's Corinth. Corinthian black figure pottery was world famous, world famous, business boom. By 400 B.C., Corinth had expanded to contain an estimated 200,000 free citizens in the city and its colonies. Uh, just to give you a contrast, the modern city of Corinth today has 50,000 residents. So it was four times as large. There were 500,000 slaves in Corinth in their navy and in their colonies. The Isthmian Games were incredibly popular. Uh, these were held every two years. They were conducted at a, at a suburb of Corinth called Isthmia. Uh, during the games, and this is important for the book of 1 Corinthians, during the games there was a recognized unity of all Greeks called the Panhellenic Truce. For example, 412 B.C., Athens and Corinth are at war. And I mean they are in an ugly, bloody war. But as soon as the Isthmian Games begins, two weeks before it begins, every Athenian is completely afforded free passage, safety to come to Corinth to see the games, to compete in the games, and then go back. This is why when you read 1 Corinthians, you're going to see so much about sports in this book. You're going to see a lot about unity in this book. You're going to see a lot about rewards. It, this matters to how you read the book. Uh, about 200 years before the Apostle Paul was born, the Romans conquered the uh, Hellenic heartland, supposedly liberating Greece from Macedonia. Corinth in the Roman conquest was utterly destroyed. Uh, the Isthmian Games continued, but folks, the city-state was utterly laid waste. Now, about 100 years later, the Romans felt the kind of guilt that we often see in history. Um, you'll see people that will conquer a place, and then about 100 years later, they'll feel kind of guilty for that, and they'll go back and spend a lot of money to rebuild it. And the Romans, at the insistence of a guy named Julius Caesar, of whom you may have heard, the Romans rebuilt Corinth in 46 B.C., 
Augustus Caesar and his descendants lavished wealth on this city. They, they gave Roman citizenship to people. They gave free tax uh, situations to have businesses move there, construction bonuses. Corinth grew wealthy again as a major city in the Roman Empire. The rebuilt Acro-Corinth, the, the Dialcas, the military presence brought stability to Corinth, brought income. People flocked to the city again. They especially appreciated the fact that the, the springs and, and the Agora were completely rebuilt. Very, very nice. By the way, those springs were so well constructed that you and I have gone to those springs to this day and, and had very, very delicious fresh water out of it 2,000 years later. Uh, wealthy businessmen moved to Corinth, as you can see, and, and had very, very nice places. The Emperor Nero even went there. Did you know this? Emperor Nero went to Corinth to compete in a music competition. He fancied himself a singer in a music competition, kind of an American Idol type thing they had there. Very wisely, the judges awarded him the victory. They... Um, <laughs> That was smart. He got, the, he got the pine bell. Seemingly, by the time Paul's writing what you just read, Corinth was, was even more prosperous, more debauched, more strategic than ever before. Strabo, a Roman writer, described Corinth, always mighty and wealthy. That's the city, all right? I want you to look for references to all the things you just heard. You don't have to have grabbed them all, but just look for references to that as you read. It's going to impact what you see in the letter. Now, Let's get to know the church in Corinth. It was founded after Paul arrived, 51 A.D. The church at Corinth contained some Jews, many Gentiles, Roman citizens. Acts chapter 18 relates the wonderful heady days of the beginning of the Corinthian church. Look up here, Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. Uh, the context to that is uh, Paul had been in Athens, and he gave a very, very famous speech at the, in front of the Areopagus, the, uh, the Roman uh, Mars Hill judgeship over theological things. Fascinating story. You can read that in Acts 17. After this, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That's also going to be significant. You see, the reason Claudius kicked all the non-slave Jews out of Rome is there was a huge fight that arose between the Jews who trusted in Jesus as Messiah and those who rejected him as Messiah. That'll be important to what we're going to see later. Uh, and he went to see them, Aquila and Priscilla, and because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, <laughs> tent makers in the first century, they made tents, but that's not what their bread and butter was. Their, their main work was making awnings. They made leather awnings because the Mediterranean sun is hot. And, and you have these shops. They're kind of shallow shops. People didn't come into the shop so much as you had your stuff in the shop, and they stood outside. So you wanted a nice awning so people could be out of the sun while they bought your your wear. So that's why they settled in large cities with big agora like, like Corinth. They were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from the north of Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent, for now I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months. That's a long time for Paul teaching the word of God among them. Paul began in the synagogue, fairly quickly moved into Titius Justice's home. With the conversion of Crispus 
it is possible the church shifted back to holding their gatherings in the synagogue again. While we don't know precisely where the church met, here's what we do know. It is clear that tensions between the Messianic Jews and those who rejected Messiah Jesus led to a very angry riot, just as it had in Rome. The Apostle Paul, in fact, was illegally, you can read about this in Acts, he was hauled before the Roman proconsul Gallio at a Corinthian judgment seat right here. It was called the Bema. That's going to be very significant. Paul was cleared of the charges, but that's going to be very significant in setting up a major theological issue in the book. We need to know the context. Now, the context shows the Corinthians struggled with 10 serious problems. I put that headline in your notes. I didn't have room to write all of them, so you can write them down right now. These were their 10 serious problems, and the scriptures will go with them. They were really bothered by divisions. You can see that in chapter 1 and chapter 3, very troubled. Sexual immorality was a massive problem, Corinthiazomai, right? Uh, lawsuits between brethren. You had Christians suing, suing Christians. Uh, utterly inappropriate. Marriage, divorce, remarriage, massive problem in, in Corinth. Meat sacrificed to idols. Remember the best meat was found at the, at the place where idols were worshipped, and some Christians had no problem with that. Other Christians really found that, found that troubling. Uh, freedom and responsibility. How, what responsibility do I have with my Christian freedom? What are, the, what are the bounds of Christian freedom? That was hard for them. Order in the church. Oh, my goodness. They were all over the map in their worship. Selfish agape feasts. Now, let me, let me explain that one. Um, we don't have any record of any church ever taking what you and I call communion, the Lord's table, in a church service during the first 200 years of Christianity. It, it may have happened, but we have no record of it. We do have record of what they did at Corinth and a lot of other places, which was you finished the church gathering, and then you went to what we would call life groups to people's homes, and you had the Lord's table there. But it was actually a big, a big feast, right? Well, some people were so selfish, they were leaving quickly, and, and while the Mercers had to stay and clean up church, I would go and eat all the food. God doesn't think that's very cool. You'll see that's a problem. All right. Uh, loveless use of gifts. My gifts are all for me. Everything God gives is all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And then they had confusion about the resurrection. Now, you look at that list. I know, I know what you are thinking in that, um, in that Italian visitor to Greece accent that you like to use. You're saying, so those were the problems. It's a big deal. Why should I study the letter? What does it mean for me? Ah, great question. Thank you for asking. Um, I want you to look again at those 10 serious problems that Paul addresses within the Corinthian church. And think, think for just a moment, and you will notice that every one of those continues to plague churches in this day. They had divisions. They had nothing on us. Holy cow. Everywhere I look, people are identified by some particular little thing. Like a lot of my relatives identify themselves as, as, as Choctaw Indians. That's it. And, they're, and they're, they see themselves as separate from anybody else. Anybody else is all separate. There's no unifying idea at all. It's absurd. In church, it's worse. Well, I go here, so-and-so teach. Well, I'm a follower of so-and-so. They got nothing on us in terms of division. It's ridiculous how divided we are. Sexual immorality, at least theirs was confined to the Acro Corinth. Ours is everywhere you look. They, they had lawsuits between brethren. That's terrible. We have that, and we have people suing churches. I slept. I'm suing the church. Marriage and divorce was a problem for them. Yeah, it is for us, too. And, 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 and we, are, we are even worse sometimes because we don't even have good elder care. We try to at this church, but, but we're, where, we, where we help discipline and, and hold people accountable to help prevent that. They had meat sacrificed to idols. Well, they fought over, is that appropriate? Should we eat that or not? <clears throat> they should see the fights we have over secular versus sacred music, right? right? It's not, or you do this. You want to see a fight? Go to your life group and talk about what kind of food is healthy. That's fun. That's a good one. 
They had problems with freedom or responsibility. So do we. We are so entitled. I'm entitled to whatever I want, right? They had problems with order in the church. Have you, have you traveled? I mean, I love our brethren around the world, but I, I travel to churches around the world, and I see all kinds of expressly prohibited things in the Bible being done in out-of-order churches. And then you'll go to churches, and it's between them and the Lord. I'm not trying to judge our wonderful brethren, but you go to churches, and, and you reach the pretty sincere feeling that it is not God being worshipped. I mean, we call it worship, but it's people that are being worshipped. They had selfish agape feasts. Nearly everybody I know thinks that church is all about them. It's all about my desires. It's all about what I want. Deep down, that's what we think. They had loveless use of gifts. We abuse our gifts and our positions. They had confusion on the resurrection. We've got uncertainty about whole swaths of biblical truth. The, the point is we have the same problems. Derek Prime has a really great summary of the core issue in each of these specific problems. Look atop the right side of your notes at his statement. He said this. The thing for which to watch, actually Derek would say, the thing for which to watch is the way in which Paul consistently relates every subject and every problem to the centrality of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the problems and difficulties of the Corinthian church arose from their losing sight of him and his headship. The enemy of our souls encourages that same peril today. And that is why we're studying 1 Corinthians. Here's our series premise. The premise is why. Why are we studying this? We live in a fractured age. Where anything that purports to unify people is viewed with mistrust and, and even anger. Such paranoia even exists in our churches, just as it did in Corinth. This letter addresses our problems, breaks our pride, and persistently points us to the unifying solution of following the triune God. Friends, there may never have been a church more guilty of using their powers for evil than the Corinthians. By learning from God's word to them, we can see how to change our own ways for good. All God's people said... Amen. So, let's start with verses 1 through 3 that we read earlier. They expose us to a wonderful preview of what the letter opens up. You see, Paul, this is really clever, he does this all the time. He likes to foreshadow his main themes of the letter in his introduction. Uh, speaking of Paul, let's learn who the writers are. Paul is an apostle of Messiah Jesus by God's will. Uh, if you don't know his history, Paul started his life as Saul, uh, Shaul, he would have said it, a, a brilliant Hebrew. He was trained by the most famous rabbi of his day. However, he was also a Roman citizen. He had an excellent education in Greek philosophy and in Roman law, and he used, he used all of that learning and all of that capacity to persecute the followers of Jesus. But then Jesus appeared to Saul, stunning him on the road to Damascus. Saul trusted Jesus, and that was a decision that cost him everything. You see, he was suddenly outcast from the Jewish leadership and, of course, was not yet trusted by the Christians. But it was all worth it to Paul as Jesus commissioned him, Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. That means he held the office of apostle, the last person to do so, the last one to see the resurrected Christ and receive his commission to start churches. That's Paul. Sosthenes is Paul's co-author. Now, he may have been a Corinthian synagogue leader who was publicly thrashed by the Jews. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. If it's the same Sosthenes, and it almost certainly is, he illustrates how God can turn the worst circumstances into a real blessing for a believer's life. You see, if this Sosthenes is that synagogue leader who was beaten in Acts 18, then it was that beating, that turned that unfair thrashing that turned Sosthenes to faith in, in God. He trusted the Messiah as a result of that. And now here he is, he's in Ephesus helping Paul, writing letters to the church back home. God does this all the time. Think, think. What in your life was an unfair tragedy that God used to open you up? That was for you, Michael. That God used to open you up for new and greater things in Him. 
unfair tragedy that God used to open you up for new and greater things. I just read a fascinating book. Um, it was about the churches of Jesus in China over the last hundred years. Okay, look at this quote. One Chinese pastor who shall remain nameless <clears throat> said this. The cultural revolution of Mao, this is an older gentleman who was alive then. He said, the cultural revolution of Mao destroyed all China. It especially scorched all churches to the ground. There were almost no Christians left. But that was the key to the 100 million who trust Jesus in China today. When everything was destroyed, a whole culture had to look for truth. And Jesus is the truth. Close quote. That's the story of every Christian. It happens all the time, my fellow Pauls and Sosthenes. We get burned down so God can do more through us. That's Paul and Sosthenes. Now, consider who the Christians are. Brethren. Do you see, you see brother in verse 1? This is huge. This is huge. Brethren is a very, very significant term in Pauline thought. Um, Paul only and exclusively used this word for people who were justified by faith in Jesus the Messiah. Anyone ever called brethren by Paul was a Christian, period. Sosthenes is our brother, he says. And Paul later will directly call the Corinthians brethren, just to emphasize the point. This is incredible! When you consider this letter was written to maybe the most, the most wretched bunch of defiled, divided, disgraced Christians in the world, and Paul calls them brethren. Believers are brethren, period. However, however, they may not be followers. And as such, they need a swift kick in the pants which is something that, that good families do for each other. And trust me, Paul will give these brethren just what they need. In that sense, the apostle is like Calvin. No, not that Calvin. Calvin, uh, the boy from the Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. Look, one of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, Calvin's got a little thing set up. It's kind of like a lemonade stand, but his, his doesn't say lemonade. It says, a swift kick in the butt, $1. Hobbes walks up. How's business? Terrible? <clears throat> That's hard to believe. Calvin replies, I can't understand it. Everybody I know needs what I'm selling. <laughs> Brethren, need a kick in the pants. Next, we learn that Christians are sanctified saints. The, the root word's the same. Uh, the authors repeat it for in, emphasis, sanctified saints. Hagios, uh, hagios is something that is, that is holy, that is set aside to be clean for God's use. Isn't that remarkable? God sees beneath the filth that is inherent in my state. And in everyone who trusts Jesus, God sees holiness. He sees us as, as set aside to be cleansed for the Lord's use. Now, it's a process that won't be complete until we march into heaven. But we are now and forever saints. About 150 years ago, that truth motivated an unknown composer to put together this great gospel song. He or she, we don't know who it was, wrote this. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, how I want to be in that number. When the saints Go marching in, sanctified saints, bound for heaven. Christians are also called called callers. Do you see that? Look, it's pretty clever. Called and call are both used. Really powerful idea. It runs through all of Paul's writings, especially this letter. Here's the concept. The concept is that God calls people to him. It is his choice. He is the mover. He is the one who speaks. He doesn't just speak worlds into being. He speaks souls into relationship with him. And as ones who are called, Christians should live differently. In response to God's calling, they should call upon God. Spoken to, they should speak back. Having been mercifully selected, they should live holy lives in gratitude. I want you to look at Dr. Schmidt's great uh, research on called and callers. Dr. Schmidt, long ago, said this. Call is an ordinary word. 
which acquires special significance through God as the author and consummator. God calls his own by grace and to grace. He does this finally and definitively through Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of grace. Further, as in 1 Corinthians 7, each should walk as he is called. All God's people said, amen. Finally, Christians are one church of many churches under one Lord. Uh, Look in verse 2. You see ecclesia? Ecclesia is a Greek word. It just means assembly. Uh, It's used of church in two ways in the New Testament, and this, this is important. It's used of local churches visible assemblies of, of believers in Christ. And it's also used of the, of the universal or invisible church, all believers of all times and all places. Now look at verse 2. Church here is referring to the visible local body of believers at Corinth. But Paul pointedly expands the view in verse 2 so we see them as they are. They're part of a larger eternal group. And that larger assembly, just like the local ones, is overseen by Jesus. Their Lord and ours, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was an assistant football coach and I walked into the locker room, all the young men suddenly made sure they behaved. The teasing stopped, the towel fights stopped, any bad language ended, because you see, when I walked in there, I represented the boss, our head coach. And respecting that and wanting to get playing time, uh, the, the guys all got in line. Paul is Jesus' apostle. He's God's assistant coach building this team. And he says to Corinth and to us and to every church of all time, you are a team assembled under Jesus' headship. Act like it. That's why we must learn to get along. That doesn't mean we all have to always agree. It doesn't mean we need to go to the same church, but we can all recognize that we are one family with one head, and none of us is that head. Read with me. Psalm 133, verse 1. Read it together. Everybody together. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. Amen. That's why we titled our examination of this first two-thirds of the book, All for One and One for All. Such is what this part of 1 Corinthians is all about. Look, here's here's my my summary of the theme, what, what this is all about. God, existing in perfect unity, calls His people to emulation. He shows us that our unity in Jesus is a fact and teaches us to apply that unity to our divisions, our sinful disobedience, our marriages or singlehood, and our moral freedom. The result of living out our unity in Christ is holiness, using our God-given powers for good. This holiness is expressed through a life of worship, which is a subject of the second part of the book. And that informs our serious objective. Here's what I hope to see God change in me through this study and you as well. Here's what I've been praying for you. Objective, that we live according to the holiness and unity that we have in Christ. All right, let's review. Paul and Sosthenes write all of us through this letter to the first century Corinthian church. In it, we learn that Christians are brethren, sanctified saints, called callers, and one church under one Lord, right? All right, well, next we learn what God gives. Go back to verse 3, pick it up there. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by Him you were enriched in everything, in all speech, and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to cover these more quickly because each of these will be major ideas we're going to study later in the book. First is grace. Let me just say this today. We use that word so often 
that I, forget, I fear that we forget what it really means. Grace is the most astonishing idea in the universe. Grace means that Jesus is the one for all. He is the one who makes a way for us to be in God's family. It is nothing we do ourselves. Grace means that humans who deserve eternal torment are given a clean and eternal relationship with Christ Jesus, God the Son, who paid for their sin, paid for their sins, trusting Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection. Those humans receive everlasting life. That's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. John Milton the great British writer, he heard grace in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he, he understood its depth and its vibrancy. So in Paradise Lost, he described it this way, love without end and without measure grace. Isn't that beautiful? Physically blind, Milton could see. He understood God's grace. But sadly, to most people today, grace is just an overused word. Peace. God gives peace. Specifically, Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. Notice, notice the emphasis that God's peace is not what the world gives. The world promises peace to you. You know it does through many different means, all of which are temporal. None of them last eternally like God's peace does. In fact, you guys know this, right? Many of the world's counterfeit peace offerings to you actually will make everything worse. Dan Bolin taught here uh, just last week. He recently wrote a great story. Uh, let me read it to you. Dan said, Settling into my airplane seat, I discovered a huge diamond ring. Apparently, a careless passenger lost it, and I was a beneficiary. I couldn't just keep it, but neither did I want to part with my newfound treasure, so I told the flight attendant, and I left my contact information in case the owner came looking for the lost jewelry. No one contacted me for several weeks, so I took the ring to a jeweler for an appraisal. How rich was I? He looked at the ring, placed a high-powered magnifying glass over his eyes, and stared at the gym. Then he pulled off the headgear and said, about $2. It's fake. To a novice like me, cut glass looked like a valuable diamond, but the master easily identified the phony. Close quote. God's peace is the real diamond, not the worldly phony. God bestows also knowledge of his words. Look, look at your text. Speech, knowledge, testimony. Words mean things. And God's words mean everything. They, they should be understood and appreciated and lived by. I want, I want to show you something. Look, look at this. A former student of mine is now a medical doctor. Uh, when she was taking a literature class at Boston University, she's an overachiever, and she decided to take a graduate literature class just for fun. And she and I were talking about it one day, and she sent me this. It's a poem that she wrote one afternoon while the professor was lecturing on grace in John Milton. And she started her poem, which she called The Wind in the Dust of Old Books, with the quote we just read earlier from, from Paradise Lost. Love without end and without measure, grace. Now listen to what she wrote. The sweet wind breathes through this dusty chamber where I'm falling asleep in darkness. I, roused, lift my head and look about, wondering who called my name. My classmates drowse, hearing only one voice sing song reciting about words which seem important. I wonder how it can praise the words and ignore their meaning, and I long to explain that though they are beautiful, they are more because of what they say. You are hypnotized by this smooth tongue and too deep into sleep for such a one as I to rouse you. I drop a book with a clatter. They look at me a moment, stirring, but return sleepy attention to the voice. The breath of life in this dead room speaks to me, the only one awake. Keep me alive, sweet silent voice, but oh, the sing-song speaks Jesus dead, and it is atheist. 
How can it be so well studied and wise in worldly things and be so blind to what is real? Poor man, poor class who don't feel the wind and the dust of old books. God gives meaning to words, the wind and the dust of old books. And the Lord gives gifts. Spiritual gifts are provided for every believer in Jesus. We, we needn't cover this now because we're going to later. It's detailed in the, in the next section starting in chapter 12. Verse 8, look at this. Uh, it says the Lord also furnishes strength. The, the Greek term's really cool. Uh, bibio originally meant uh, that upon which somebody could walk. Meant something solid. Now it became an important legal term for the Greeks, a, a word that meant something valid or attested as trustworthy. Uh, when it's used in situations like this one in 1 Corinthians 1, babao indicates firmness, solidity. God promises to make you firmly established. His spirit, his word are unshakable. His salvation is sure, no matter what we face, no matter how shaky life appears, God promises Christians that, that your foundation is actually solid. Finally, we are solidly founded together. Look at verse 9. It says we have fellowship. We are family in Jesus with whom we have fellowship. Truly, we are all for one who is the one for all. So much great stuff here. Look, Paul and Sosthenes write all of us through this letter to the First Corinthian church. They show us that Christians are brethren, sanctified saints, called callers, one church under one Lord. Further, God gives us grace and peace, knowledge of his words the wind and the dust of old books. And he gives us gifts and strength and fellowship. All God's people said, amen. amen. Now, before we go, one last package I want us to see that's hidden in these verses. Look at verses 7 through 9. They describe what will happen. Two things are revealed here that will be massive in this book. Each of these is really, really important. The first is the resurrected Lord and Messiah Jesus will be revealed. On that day of the Lord, which is a specific phrase from the Old Testament, Jesus is going to be seen as who he is. God the Son, resurrected Lord, Messiah King. There are very specific events that are associated with the day of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets in particular give us a whole bunch of signs that are going to be part of that day. Well, our Christian forefathers took that and they included a lot of those signs in their great song, When the Saints Go Marching In. That's why the verses of the song say, Oh, when the stars fall from the sky. Oh, when the moon turns red with blood. Oh, when the trumpet sounds its call. Oh, when the horsemen begin to ride. Oh, when the fire begins to blaze. I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. It's all about, the song is all about Jesus revealed on the day of the Lord and the saints who get to go with him. Speaking of saints, on that day Christians will be made blameless. You see that? Sanctification will be complete. We will be glorified in creature perfection with no more sin. God loves you. And he wants you to be in that company. I also want you to be in that number. So let me borrow a line from Martin Luther King's wonderful speech, I Have a Dream. He said this. Look what King said. We've also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. Now, most people today don't know it, but that is, that is a direct quote, a very strong allusion to an old hymn from, from 1836 written by a guy named William Hunter. It's very outdated, but the words are brilliant. Look, look what that hymn says. O sacred hour, O hallowed spot, where love divine first found me. Wherever falls my distant lot, my heart shall linger round thee. And when from earth I rise to soar up to my home in heaven, down I will cast my eyes once more where I was first forgiven. 
It's a song all about the joy of that time and place where a person trusts in Jesus, realizing that he is the one for all. And I pray this is that time and place for you. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone, anyone studying with me, wherever they are, that doesn't trust Jesus as Savior, that you will draw them to you right now. Jesus is the Messiah. He came because he loves you. And God wants you to be in that number. He calls, and you need to call back right now. Talk to God Almighty who is here and who is with us and tell him that you trust Jesus as Savior. Not yourself, not your goodness, which is like filthy rags because you're human. You trust Jesus alone as your Savior. If you just put your trust in Christ, raise your hand, please. Look up at me. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Father, I pray for any who are new believers in Christ and all, all of us who have been believers for some time that we will recognize the incredible gift you give us in who we are and what you're going to do and what you give us now. And let us make use of those provisions. Speaking of provisions, Lord, we pray for our offering that we're about to give. Use it. Multiply it. Strengthen your church through it. Do work all around the world through it. And use us to joyfully give. In Jesus' name, amen.